Well, I want to start by uh, asking that you will indulge me a lectern today uh, and put to rest the rumor that, um, that my problem is that I ate too much Halloween candy this week. Um, I had the flu and was down for a couple days and realized yesterday you would get a much better sermon if I read it than if I tried to uh, give it. So I did not go trick-or-treating and did not eat any Halloween candy at all. So on a sermon on gluttony, it seems important to start with that point. The Bible says a lot about food. Um, It begins and ends with it. From forbidden fruit in a garden to a banquet table in heaven, food is a big theme. This isn't all that surprising, given how much of our life is involved with food, from planting and growing and caring for and harvesting and transporting and marketing and displaying and buying and transporting and preparing and eating and cleaning up. And given how much pleasure and how much pain food causes, it's not surprising that God would weigh in. And he does. However, uh, this is the first sermon I have ever preached on gluttony, and I suspect it's the first sermon you have ever heard on the topic. God has much to say about food. We have largely ignored what it is that he has had to say, and we have done so uh, at great peril. There are downsides to misusing food, but let's not go there just yet. There are many upsides about food as well. Let's start there. I want to suggest three. First of all, food is a source of great joy. We were designed by God to eat. It's not our highest calling. Our highest calling is to give glory to God. We do not live to eat. We were designed to eat to live. Nevertheless, per God's design, eating is a source of great joy. Right? He gave us taste buds to enjoy food and gave us tens of thousands of different kinds of foods to enjoy. It didn't have to be that way. He could have given us some sort of battery pack. Food could have been strictly a utilitarian event. But he designed food to be a source of great pleasure and joy. Secondly, food is a catalyst for family and friends. Think about how many important things take place around food. Think about how many important things happen because people sit down together to eat. Think about how many important things are discussed at the table. Think about how many things children learn because they are seated with their parents every day overhearing the conversation. Some of you, if you didn't have to eat, would spend even more time working. Lacking a requirement or at least an excuse to sit down With others and socialize, you wouldn't do it. Eating with others is a catalyst for lots of good things. Think about all the the good moments in life that are made better because of food, right? Weddings, reunions, banquets, graduations, birthday parties, and almost all of them, food, if it's not central, is at least not far away. 
This past week, I reconnected with Paul Litton, a guy I knew um, about 15 years ago when he was a campus pastor with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and I was running a college ministry network. Paul was an interesting guy, a writer, a good thinker, and so I would frequently bring him in to speak at different college ministry gatherings that I was hosting. And uh, one particular uh, event he called the night before he was supposed to lead a workshop and said, I can't show up. Uh, I have uh, the worst case of mono that my doctor has ever seen. He says, there is no way I can go. Well, I, you know, just quickly moved into, uh, you know, crisis mode and, and cared for that, the fact that he wasn't going to show up. Didn't think much about it for about a week or two after, and I called him up to see how he was doing. And he said, well, I'm not doing well. It wasn't mono. It's actually cancer. And it's, it's pretty severe, and my odds are not, are not strong. Paul was maybe 30 years old at the time. To cut to the chase, Paul uh, had a very grueling year. He surgery and radiation and chemo and all kinds of other things. He went to death's door and climbed back. But one of the repercussions of all the treatment was that he was left without uh, the ability to swallow, which meant that he would never be able to eat or drink again. Uh, I've thought about Paul several times over the last 15 years, and I tried to find him a couple times unsuccessfully. I tried again this week and, and reached him. And I said, Paul, I'm, I'm going to be preaching on gluttony, and it strikes me that you, of all people, may have one of the most unique perspectives on food. Can you tell me how you think about it? And he said... Uh, I take descriptions about the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven very literally. I'm looking forward to that party. I'm going to eat more than anyone else. I will be at the table longer than anyone else. I said, is there one particular food that you are most anxious to have? And he said, absolutely. There is, there is no close second. He said, what I miss most of all is a glass of cold water. That's the first thing that I'll reach for when I get to heaven. He then went on to say, food is sacramental. So many important things happen around food. So many events take place with food at the very center that it's very awkward when you cannot eat. I asked if he sat down with his family every day uh, in order to just be part of that. And he said, oh, absolutely. He says, I sit down with them Every day, I don't want to miss that. Food brings people together. Third, food is an ongoing reminder of the goodness of God. We don't get this, uh, not very often. We may say grace and uh, acknowledge that God is somehow responsible for the provision of food in front of us, but we seldom realize how utterly dependent we are upon him for his favor. We largely feel like we take care of ourselves. But just stop and think this through for a minute. Think about how the system is designed. Do you remember the first time you heard that if you put a seed in the ground, you would get a tree, and that tree would eventually give you thousands of these? Right? That didn't really make any sense. When we're little, 
lots of things are surprising. I mean, I was surprised to learn that my kindergarten teacher didn't live at school, right? That she had a life and that uh, it, it went on when I wasn't there. Um, we're surprised by a lot of things. And I remember the first time I heard someone suggest that if you put a seed in the ground, it would turn into food. And I just thought that it was a joke, right? No, it doesn't work that way, right? There's nothing about my experience that would lead me to believe that if you put a seed in dirt, it's going to turn into something like this. And yet, that's the way it works. It's unthinkable. It's amazing, right? I mean, how does, how does a brown cow eat green grass and make white milk? <laughs> the whole system is shocking. That, that there is some, something in the, the DNA of a seed that is going to be able to turn sunlight and water and, and the, the dirt around it into a tree that will be alive, that will be pollinated by bees, that will produce apples that we can eat that look nothing like the dirt that it comes out of, right? I would suggest to you that that whole system is amazing. Think about water. We need it every few hours. How do we get it? Well, we simply go to the faucet and turn it on, and it's there. But think about it one level removed from that. How is it that water is dispersed around the planet? How do people who don't live close to lakes or streams or the ocean get water? How do farmers in Kansas get enough water to water their crops so that when they put seeds in the ground, they turn into plants? The answer is, it falls from the sky. Think about that. It falls from the sky. Every few days, in, in, it just spread out over everywhere, and it falls in tiny little drops, not big gushers that would cause havoc. Think about what we do to try and transport water. Think about the costs, the fuel, the pipes, the man hours, all of the, the labor and expense that goes into moving just a few gallons. And, and think about how utterly ludicrous it would be if someone said, you know, there ought to be a system where the water in the ocean sort of just goes up into the sky and then it's carried along by the wind until it gets over Kansas and then it just sprinkles down every few days. And, and the whole system ought to be free. Right? It is unthinkable what God does. We have no idea or appreciation how unbelievable the ecosystem God designed actually is. We take it for granted. We act like we can get by on our own because we have enough money to stop at Taco Bell on the way home and get something to eat. We read the account of God providing manna from heaven for the Jews when they were wandering around in the Egyptian desert and think, if only God did something like that, I'd believe. I would suggest to you, God does something like that every day. The system is amazing, and the only reason we're not amazed is because we've seen it in action and stopped paying attention. Food is a source of great pleasure. Food brings us together. 
food reminds us, or at least it should, of God's ongoing care and provision for us. However, there are downsides. The problem with good gifts is that they have powerful downsides. When really good things like fire or sex or food are misused, they can do great harm. Their ability to do good is matched by their ability to wreak havoc. We see this on a variety of levels. Perhaps the most obvious are the problems caused by a lack of food. Sometimes this is the result of what we deem natural disasters. One of the leaders that Christ Church supported a few years ago was Abdella Usman, uh, an Ethiopian leader who was doing his doctoral studies trying to figure out how to prevent uh, another uh, famine hitting Ethiopia. Uh, Abdella, when he was in his late 20s, was placed in charge of a World Vision food distribution center during the famine that was going on in Ethiopia in the 80s. During the first six months that he was in charge, one person died of starvation every hour, 24 hours a day. He said the problem of what happened in Ethiopia was in part exacerbated by Ethiopian culture, which says that you don't ask for food, you don't ask for any kind of help until you have exhausted every possible viable thing you could do for yourself, which meant that they didn't look for help until they had not only eaten all their food, but they had eaten next year's seed crop, and they had taken their house apart board by board to either sell the wood or use it for fuel, and they had utterly exhausted every possible resource they had. That is when they would look for help. And he said that's when they would show up at a, to our food station as human skeletons now in desperate need of help, not just for today, but for the next year. And he said the problem was exacerbated by American generosity. You saw the pictures of the living skeletons, and you sent food, and suddenly food was free. And the few farmers who had managed to stay in business now could not stay in business because they had no one to sell their wares to. And he said, so our problem was exacerbated uh, by that. We helped support Abdella trying to figure out how to uh, be proactive. Helping people is complicated. Um, And I think Abdella is a great leader, and I'm excited that we had a privilege through Scholar Leaders, one of the groups that we support, to help him in in this effort. There are other reasons that that starvation takes place on national levels. The second most common, perhaps even more common than natural disasters, would be inept or evil governments. Stalin and Mao each presided over the deaths of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of their own people in order to force a a particular political agenda. Today, the people in Zimbabwe and North Korea are starving because of particularly evil, corrupt, inept governments. Closer to home, on a much smaller scale, we have problems as close as North Chicago, where there is not a single grocery store. It is technically deemed a food desert. That means that if you are under-resourced, don't have a car, rely on public transportation to get around, you can't go to a grocery store. You go to a food mart that doesn't have any fresh fruits or vegetables. You can buy food that is convenient, but not food that is 
good for you. There are people working on this. There are people at this congregation working on this. Uh, Jennifer Grumhouse and North Chicago Community Partners has recently opened a new food bank out of North Chicago High School, trying specifically to focus on fresh fruits and vegetables. Ike Hong is several years into a community garden project in North Chicago that has numerous families growing vegetables and, and seeing uh, good things come out of that. Suffice it to say, there are food problems on a macroscopic level that need our attention. But I want to focus on a more personal level. There are two ways the sin of gluttony can express itself in your life or mine. We eat too much or we allow food to have too much power over us. Both are forms of idolatry. Now, I'm not going to say much about eating too much for a couple reasons. First, there are many people far more qualified than I am to weigh in on this. There are books and diets and doctors and TV shows that are glad to help you. Uh, Yes, it's a big issue. And according to studies done as recently as 2012, over the last 100 years, our sugar intake has increased drastically up from 5 pounds per year to 2 to 3 pounds per week. And this has had corresponding uh, problems throughout our, our population. Whereas only 5% of the people uh, had high blood pressure in 1900, one-third of the population does, to na- does today. Whereas only 153 million people had diabetes in 1980, 347 million uh, people do now. And 68% of Americans are overweight And 35.7% of us are technically obese. We are the most overweight, industrialized nation on earth. There are medical reasons to pay attention to your diet. To eat less and exercise more, to eat less processed foods, more fruits and vegetables, to watch your cholesterol levels, and on and on it goes. God cares about all of this. Your health is not simply a medical issue. It's a spiritual one. Our body, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, our body is a temple of God because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. We need to give our health in general and our diet in particular the attention it deserves. But I want to focus on the spiritual dynamics around food. I don't think we are aware of how bizarre the culture we are living in actually is is. I knew that we were a bit food obsessed before I started preparing for this sermon on gluttony, but I didn't appreciate exactly how obsessed we were until I started doing my research. This was actually the first thing that Paul Litton, my friend who hasn't been able to eat in 15 years, commented on. When I told him about the sermon and asked him for his perspective on food, he said, When you can't eat, when you become a food voyeur and a bystander, you realize just how odd our culture is. Every quarter mile, there are signs advertising food. Every store you walk into is overflowing with food. People waste food at virtually every meal. Food is a cultural obsession. The light uh, for me went on partially a few years ago when I had a conversation with uh, a a young father 
and he just mentioned in passing that his entire family liked to watch uh, the Food Network. Now, we made the option to not have cable TV or um, satellite TV, and so there's a whole lot of these things that just uh, fly by me for a while. I'm not aware of what's going on. And I, I said, the Food Network. What is the Food Network? I mean, I'm thinking, like, you know, this is Julia Child's reruns or the Galloping Gourmet out in syndication. And uh, he says, no, there's a, there's, a, there's, a chan- there's a whole channel. It just has cooking shows on it. I'm like, cooking shows? You watch cooking shows? He says, yeah. I go, you watch, you watch people cook? He said, yeah. I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, we love it. I said, you, you realize that you can't eat it, right? I mean, <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, we, we watch them all the time. I go, we? He goes, yeah, the whole family. I go, the kids? He goes, yes, the kids, they, they love it. You watch cooking shows every day. The entire family, the kids, are not outside playing. They're inside watching people cook. This does not strike you as a little bit odd. After rehearsing this conversation in my mind for a while, I was reminded of a C.S. Lewis quote. I went looking for it. I, I remembered it a little bit incorrectly, but, but it, the way I remembered it, the way it actually is, just made it all the more bizarre. Lewis had not been commenting on food. He had been commenting on lust. He used food as an example. But the, the bizarre thing is, is that, It now has come full circle, and in some ways, food is the new sex. Let me read this uh, quote. Lewis says, You can get a large audience together for a striptease act to watch a girl undress on stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop, or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone terribly wrong with their appetite for food? Lewis, of course, was commenting on the fact that something has gone terribly wrong in our views of sex. But now something has gone bizarre about our understanding of food. We have what I would suggest is food porn. Print ads TV commercials and TV shows, entire networks devoted to food. What would Lewis make of all this? As I was thinking about the food network, I wondered how challenging it would be to explain to someone from a third world country or another planet why people watched others prepare food when they couldn't eat it. I realized they would think that this was some sort of religious experience. And then I realized, well, maybe it is. A flawed religious experience, to be sure, but a religious event all the same. Some people do get spiritual when talking about food. They call it heavenly, or they say, this pie is to die for. We have angel food cake and soul food and nectar of the gods and death by chocolate. And if you pay attention, there's there's a whole lot of spiritual language that goes into describing our food. Now, some of this is absolutely okay, really. It's not idolatry to have a great meal 
and to enjoy a great meal with family or friends. Please hear this line. Absolutely nothing I am saying should prevent you from having a huge Thanksgiving feast and overeating. Really, that's not gluttony, right? Having a bunch of family and friends together for a special occasion and enjoying God's provision and and occasionally overeating, that's not what we're talking about here. It's the ongoing focus and fascination with food. It's trying to fill a spiritual void, a hole in our heart with food. It's trying to find meaning and comfort from food that it can't give. That's when we get into problems. Jesus feasted. As I've said before, he, he, he feasted so often that the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, he fasted as well, but he enjoyed a meal with family and friends. There is nothing wrong with celebrations and parties with lots of food. We just can't eat that way all the time. God gave us many good things, and we're free to celebrate them as long as we don't elevate them. The Apostle Paul comments in 1 Corinthians that we're free to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I mean, really, we're, we're free to eat food. It's not a big deal. He says, don't eat food that's going to cause others to stumble, but if it's not going to bother you and it's not going to bother them, you are free to eat. The problem is not with the food. But sometimes we get sideways with food. It becomes too powerful. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, the comforter, is pushed aside by comfort food. Many of us would profit by learning to control our appetites. And, tragically, sometimes we get messed up in what can seem like the opposite direction. We obsess over food, but because of cultural pressures, this actually leads us not to eat. In my preparation for this sermon, I ran across this quote. The God of thinness is our new national obsession. Its Bible is the newest diet book. It's alter the bathroom scale. It's prayer counting calories. It's goal to be noticed. It's motivation, shame. It's idol, the perfect body. It's temptation, carbs, calories, and chocolate. In many zip codes and on most college campuses, many people, especially women, frequently young women, are as likely to obsess over food by not eating it as they are by overeating. They can't walk past a scale without stepping on it. There are a growing number who suffer from eating disorders that reflect some confused thinking about who they are and the role of food. Alison Brewster has an interesting story to tell. Let's watch this video clip. My name's uh, Alison Brewster, and I have suffered from an eating disorder for over 36 years. I grew up in a family where appearances were very, very um, important. So when I was 12 years old, my mother put me on a diet. And I was very confused because at that time I had no understanding of, I, I thought I was okay. The 
the feelings became too much and I had to find a way out. And my way out to relieve the pain and the pressure of everything I was feeling was to um, purge. I would eat and eat and eat to numb the feelings of pain and then purge to get rid of all of the feelings on the opposite end. When my children went off to school, my, last, my, my youngest daughter went off to college, I was left with myself and left with this horrific um, feeling of emptiness. Um, and I went away for a week and in the week that I was gone, all I did all day long was binge and purge. There was nothing else to my life. I binged and purged 20 times a day. I didn't leave the house. And that is the point that I hit rock bottom. I decided I could no longer live this way. And so I decided to do something about the self-destructive path that I was on. Um, and I entered an eating disorder facility out in California called Montanito. Um, and that's where I surrendered in two very big ways. First, I surrendered to the grace of God, and then I surrendered to the facility. I always wondered why God let me let this continue. And as I surrendered to God, when I went into the facility, I understood that he wasn't doing this to me. Um, there was part of his plan to allow me to come into full realization about my relationship with him and how he wanted me to serve him. I feel like the suffering that has occurred over these 36 years has prepared me to allow God into my heart and to fill me with the love and the freedom that I wasn't ready for. The freedom to live my life in a way that I've never lived it before. Um, the freedom to love people, to share honestly, to um, be in conversations that I don't think I could have ever been before because my mind was somewhere else on the next binge, on the next purge, on the next fix. And um, as I said, God gave me strength every day to fight all of what I fought. The part that I have learned over the two years is that I am enough. I am enough just the way I am. I am enough to be loved just the way I am and that God loves me the way, just the way I am. I want to be really careful here. Uh, I do not want to suggest that eating disorders should be labeled sin. All sin is ultimately self-destructive, but not all self-destructive behavior would be labeled sin. This is complicated. Eating disorders are complicated. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, you need to talk with people far more informed on these topics than I am, and I'm very glad to say that Allison herself would welcome an opportunity to talk with you. It was a real God moment six months ago as I was just beginning to pull together this series when Allison made an appointment and said to me, uh, I've had an eating disorder for the last 30-some years. I am two years on the side of recovery. I'm ready to go public. Put me in the game. And I said, well, Allison, I'm 
looking for someone who will share a testimony on gluttony, and she said, I'm the person. So um, uh, if you struggle in this way, I would encourage you to have a conversation with Allison. Let me say this. Food can become important, too important to someone in more than one way. It can lead some of us to overeat and some of us to not eat or to eat and purge. In either case, it's simply too important. It's been elevated in our life to a position it cannot fill. A few weeks ago, I suggested that it was possible to be a very, very busy sloth. Today, I'm suggesting that it's possible to be a very skinny glutton. So what exactly is gluttony? Well, it's a physical sin. That is, it's more like lust than it is like envy or pride. It's typically understood to be wrapped up in our attitudes and practices around food, though it can be about other things. At one level, gluttony is about excess consumption. Could be of experiences, shopping, watching football, both come to mind. If greed is a desire to have more stuff, gluttony is a desire to consume more. It's an inability to say no to certain appetites. At a slightly deeper level, gluttony is a decision to let the wrong things control us. It's deferring to our appetites instead of deferring to God. At its core, gluttony suggests that God is not enough, not big enough, strong enough, or smart enough to defer to. We're going to head down a different path. We're going to find our joy, our purpose, in a different direction. To that end, gluttony is not simply a lack of willpower. Gluttony is idolatry. It's letting something else rival God for first place in our heart. So what is the way forward? Well, as always, I think the place to start is by being a bit more reflective. We move way too fast to think things through in light of God and eternity. If we reflect more, I think we'll be more aware of how dependent we are upon God, and we will say grace a bit more like we mean it. We will understand how utterly dependent we are for the food that is in front of us. To God. The second thing I would recommend is fasting. Not dieting, not not eating in order to lose weight, but not eating for a period in order to focus more on God, to make ourselves vulnerable before Him, to have the ongoing ache of hunger remind us to pray. Dieting is about my willpower over food. Fasting is about my relinquishment of power to God. Dieting is about human control. Fasting is about human submission. Dieting is about who I am. Fasting is about whose I am. Dieting is about losing weight. Fasting is about becoming Christ-like. Dieting is about impressing people. Fasting is about serving people. Dieting is about shrinking my body. Fasting is about surrendering my anxiety over food and turning to God for life. Of course, in the end... The ultimate solution for all things is Christ himself. And we are fortunate today to come to the table of our Lord and Savior and to declare again our need, our utter dependence upon him and his death. 
for our life and hope. Our resolutions are powerless to change our heart. We need more than principles and personal trainers to become who we want to be and who we were made to be. We need Christ. The good news for the glutton is that acceptance and change aren't based on our resolutions and effort, but on God's gracious resolution and effort to make us his workmanship in Christ. The only resolution that ultimately matters is God's gracious resolution to give sinners himself through the blood-stained cross and the empty tomb. The gospel offers us all we need to satisfy our hungry soul. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. I'm going to pray for us, but before I do that, let me invite those who are going to distribute the communion elements to come forward. And let me state, as always, that this is an open communion table. Anyone who has placed Christ as Savior and Lord is invited to join us at this table, regardless of their membership in this particular local congregation. Now let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we pause at the onset to acknowledge that we take uh, food for granted. We take the whole system for granted. We have not been nearly as thankful for your ongoing provision as we should be. And we repent of that and we thank you for this food that is before us, especially for what it stands for, your Son, our Savior, his death on the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for dying that we could live. We thank you that Christianity is not this I do, but this you did. It's not about us being perfect, weighing the right amount, being healthy, having willpower. It's about none of that. It's about you and what you have done. We declare as much again. We are broken. We come as desperate, needy gluttons, full of pride, greed, envy, anger, sloth, lust, and all the other sins to, to you and to your grace. Meet with us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.